Well, if you have your Bibles with you, open up to Mark chapter 1. Or if you have your scripture journal, open up to Mark chapter 1, verse 16. Mark chapter 1, verse 16. So for those of you who are taking notes in uh, your scripture journals, if something sticks out to you along the way as I'm uh, going through the text today, uh, just jot it down, write it down, uh, even if it's just one word. Or if it's something you need to underline or something you need to circle, keep in mind as you're taking notes, you can always come back later uh, after the service and during the week and, and use uh, those underlined items and those circled words and things like that or little notes that you jotted down. You can use those later in the week uh, for your personal time with the Lord. So I think that'd be a neat way for you to spend time with God uh, in the book of Mark as you go through uh, the text again during the week. And so uh, then we can come back next week prepared for the next part. So uh, anyways, we're, we're excited because we're in the middle of this series, None Like Him, and we're looking at the gospel of Mark to see the life of Jesus, the uniqueness of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So before we dive in again today to Mark, uh, let me pray for us and ask the Lord to bless his word. Jesus, again, we come before you today, and we humbly ask that you would speak to our hearts through the power of your word, through your Holy Spirit, enlighten us to the truth of these words. God, you have authority, and your words have authority over our lives, Lord, whether we like that, whether we want to admit that or not. God, you are the creator of all things, and so your words carry authority over our lives. So Lord, help us to be attentive and help us to listen closely to what you have to say to us today. Would you speak to our hearts and transform us? It's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. So have you ever had something so broken that you just finally had to get rid of it? So maybe parents, it was a toy that one of your kids had and you tried to fix it over and over and you finally just realized, you know, this is just not gonna work. So when they're not looking, it's gone, right? Or maybe the batteries just ran dead and all of a sudden, oh, I'm sorry, kids, it's broke and we can't listen to this obnoxious noise anymore, right? Um, <laughs> one time I was trying to repair a ceiling fan or fix something on it, I don't even remember, uh, not long after we moved here to Jacksonville and I stood on our coffee table and apparently coffee tables have a weight limit, um, that there's only so much they can bear. Uh, and so the iron leg broke uh, in half, I'm ashamed to say. Uh, and so uh, it was broken beyond repair. So we just had to get rid of the whole thing. Uh, well, no matter what it is in our lives that is broken, that we have to get rid of and, and is beyond repair, something that we can't fix, no matter what it is, I think that points us to the greater reality that the world itself is very broken. I think our world seems in many ways beyond repair. Think about the natural world, the natural disasters that we see every year, whether it be hurricanes or flooding or tornadoes or tsunamis around the world, whatever it may be, we see that the world, the earth, the material world, something is not right. And then think about the human body. 
Perhaps that is the greatest evidence that something is wrong with the material world. Our bodies suffer from sickness. Our bodies suffer from disease. And eventually, all of us, our bodies will suffer death and decay. They're not going to last forever. They will truly be beyond repair in that regard. But then think about the spiritual world that affects our interactions with others on individual and corporate levels. Socially, our world is broken. There's so much disunity in the world. There's so much relational conflict in marriages and and parents with their grown children and, and work relationships and even amongst people in the church sometimes. There's disunity. There's social injustices. There's wars. There's oppression. There's abuse of power. There are so many relational things that are broken and seem, in many ways, beyond repair. And I think all of this evidence, as depressing as it sounds, I think it all leaves us with the question, can anything really be repaired? Can any of this be fixed? Some would say yes. Yes, we can fix the world with the right willpower and collective human effort. We can change the world for the better. Some would say, no, the world is the way it is. And so, you know what? We just got to cope with it. So we just have to medicate on something to ease the pain, to numb us to the reality of the problems in our lives and to distract us from the real problems and the depth of our own hearts and souls, whether it be entertainment or drugs or anything that distracts us from the reality of the brokenness in our lives. But see, neither of those ways, the person who says, yes, through great human willpower and collective effort, we can change the world and make it some kind of utopia, or the person who just gives up and says, no, we can't do anything and I'm just going to medicate. Neither of these ways are healthy ways of dealing with the problem because neither of those ways can deal with the problem. Neither of these ways are sufficient because we are created beings and therefore we must look beyond ourselves for the answer. As created beings, we must look to someone who is greater, a creator, who is greater, who has answers, who has power, who has capability, who has authority to fix the problems of the world. So the Bible has something to say about this. The Bible addresses this great problem because the root issue of all the problems we see around us, the pain, the suffering of the physical world and the relational and the spiritual world, it all comes back to the problem of what the Bible calls sin. Sin is a word we use a lot in the church world because it's a very biblical word. It's a word that means we have departed from God's original design. You see, God created a good world. God created the world for humans to thrive. He set the stage for us to succeed, and so things were good. We didn't have suffering. We didn't have the physical, material brokenness. We didn't have the spiritual, relational brokenness. But mankind decided that God's good world was not enough for us. And so we turned to the world, ironically, to give us satisfaction instead of God himself. 
And that problem is called sin. And so that sin brought corruption. It brought brokenness. It brought disaster on the human soul, which in turn affects everything. All of our relationships and all nations and the wars you see and all these things, it all boils down to the fact that humanity said, God, our creator, you are not enough for us. And so the world is truly broken. In fact, we are living under a curse. We are. We're living under the curse of sin. But the greatest consequence is not just the brokenness we see around us. The greatest consequence of our sin is separation from our Creator. It's separation from our holy God who cannot be in the presence of sin. And so while we suffer in the physical and spiritual ways that we do, the greatest dilemma we have is that we cannot have a relationship with God, the creator of all things. At least not the way things are left to ourselves. But the good news is, as Mark is going to show us today, that Jesus came to reverse the curse. That's exactly what he did. Jesus came to reverse this curse of sin to make things whole again, to make things new again. And so we're going to pick up where we left off last week in Mark chapter 1, verse 16. Now, remember last week, I told you, Mark's, this is like a biography or a documentary of Jesus that Mark is telling us, right? And it's very fast-paced, more so than the other Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John. Mark is very quick to the point. He's very fast-paced, giving us little snippets of episodes and scenes of Jesus' ministry. Well, today he's going to live up to that. Today we're going to experience that as we look at several quick stories, quick scenes, if you will, but very important ones that I believe have a common thread. We're going to see today in each of these episodes this, that Jesus came to reverse the curse of sin. Hey, if you are taking notes in your Mark journals, write that down. Write that down real big, somewhere near the top of the page. Jesus came to reverse the curse of sin. We're going to get back to that in a minute. But the darkness of sin and the corruption and brokenness it has brought on the world is very evident in these episodes, both physically and spiritually. So I want us to walk through these texts, these different scenes, if you will, And then we'll make some points at the end. So let's pick up Mark chapter 1, verse 16. We'll go through verse 18. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. So Jesus is calling his first disciples here to follow him. So this is Simon, also known as Peter. So that's Peter and Andrew, his brother. And then later on, he's going to call another set of brothers, James and John. But notice what Jesus says these fishermen are going to do. He says, I will make you become what? Fishers of men, fishers of people. You see, Jesus He's not looking to build some kind of political movement. Jesus is not looking to build some kind of really great business or make a profit out of what he's about to do. Jesus is after people. That is what he's after. He's after broken, lost 
people suffering from the consequences of their own sin in the broken world we live in, living under the curse. And so Jesus is calling these disciples to follow him on a dangerous journey. Reversing the curse of sin is not going to be easy. Pick up in verse 21 with me, Mark chapter 1, 21. We'll read down to verse 28. Listen to this scene. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. So I want you to underline that word authority. He was teaching, right, as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Verse 23, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out. So this is a demon-possessed man. And he cried out, verse 24, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? Again, underline that word authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once... His fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Now, this is a pretty remarkable scene here that Mark is showing us and giving us a glimpse into the life of Jesus, the everyday life, right? He's in this synagogue. He's teaching. So that would be sort of equivalent to a church service just like this. Except imagine someone just barging in, right, who is obviously disturbed and then yelling out this, Have you come to destroy us, right? This is a demon-possessed man. This demon, this unclean spirit is speaking through him. And this is very common in the first century in this area where Jesus is doing his ministry. You see this in these accounts of Jesus' life. The people are impressed, though, at first because they don't know Jesus' true identity. They don't know his identity, but this demon who is possessing this poor man, he does know who Jesus is. Isn't that funny? The people there listening to his teaching can't even realize that he's the son of God, but the demon knows. He states his true identity and he knows his capability because he says, have you come to destroy us? The evil forces know what Jesus is up to. They know his mission. The demon knows what Jesus has come to do and he knows he has the authority to do it. So Jesus speaks And the demon must flee, right? So his words carry power because he has the authority over this spiritual world. But not only does Jesus as the Son of God have authority over the spiritual realm, he also has authority over the physical realm. Look at this. Look down at verse 29. Mark 1, 29. We'll read to verse 34. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many 
who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. See, so Jesus, look what he's doing. He's bringing physical healing. He's bringing spiritual healing. And these physical healings, they shouldn't be unbelievable to us. Because the one who created molecules, the one who created atoms, right? He can cause them to do whatever he wants. And so if he wants them to reverse their course, if he wants to make them whole again, they must obey his words. And then Mark gives us two specific scenes, two specific examples back to back of Jesus' ability to do the seemingly impossible. He's going to heal two men with two different debilitating diseases that are basically death sentences for them in the ancient world. Look at this, verse 40. Verse 40 to 42. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. This is truly amazing what's happening there. Now we're going to come back to that little part later. But then look at the second man, the second man that Jesus heals from this debilitating disease, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. What a fascinating story this is. Listen, and when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now that's fascinating, right? I mean, what, what ingenuity, right? I mean, obviously this paralytic's friends were engineers, at least one of them, right? He's like, hey, let's just cut a hole in the roof. This is easy. We could do this, right? So very creative. They can't get to Jesus. It's too crowded. So they cut a hole in the roof. They, lay, they, they, lower, they lower the paralytic down. And look at this, verse five. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, that's probably not what the paralytic expected to hear at first. It's probably not what he wanted at first because he's laying there and he cannot move. And Jesus doesn't heal him immediately. So in this remarkable scene where Jesus is teaching in this crowded house, rock and clay and dirt, and grass or whatever else would have made up this ancient roof, right, would start to fall and people are astonished that this man's coming through the roof. Well, now we know what's gonna happen. Jesus is going to heal him, right? But that doesn't happen. Jesus looks at the man at first and says, son, your sins are forgiven. Verse six, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts Scribes were religious leaders. They said, why, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority, underline that word, authority, 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Mark chapter two, let's keep going. Look at this, verse 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, just for the record, this is most likely, this is Matthew, the disciple of Jesus. Levi, also known as Matthew. He's a tax collector. Now, in the ancient world, that's not cool. Because, I mean, it's not really cool today either. But in the ancient world, (laughs) this tax collector essentially working for the Roman Empire, would make the Jewish people very angry because they hated the Roman Empire. They're living under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And now one of their own, this Jew, Matthew, is collecting taxes for the Romans. He's probably, because he's sitting beside the sea, I read uh, in one of the commentaries, that he's probably collecting taxes from the fishermen. Now, who are the other disciples with Jesus right now, right? Four fishermen. And so he's, they're probably thinking, are you serious, right? This guy, the guy that is, is, is a fraud, taking too much money from us and with these taxes as soon as we get out of the boat, right? That's what he's doing. But Jesus says, no, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Verse 15, and as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus approaches four fishermen and he tells them, I will make you become fishers of people, fishers of men. He approaches a tax collector and goes into his house and sits with him and all his hated friends, all the people who are not living for the Lord. Jesus sits with them and he eats with them, a sign of fellowship. Because what is he showing those fishermen? We're going after people. Those who are suffering the most from the brokenness of sin, those are the ones we're going after. And we see in these episodes, we see when the kingdom of God is at hand, as Jesus said, as we looked at last week, in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Jesus said, Repent and believe in the gospel. He said the kingdom of God is at hand. We see that the kingdom of God is here. It's coming to earth. Jesus has come to earth. God in the flesh, the God-man is here. And things are never going to be the same. In C.S. Lewis's 
the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. It is said of Narnia that it's always winter, but never Christmas. So in other words, Narnia is a magical land, but it's living under a curse. And so snow and ice and cold are everywhere. And there's a white witch, as you know the story, you know, the, she's cast this spell over Narnia and everyone's living under her, her realm, her power. But Lewis has a figure in the story called Aslan. And Aslan is this lion. And when Aslan, who in the story represents Jesus, when he comes to Narnia, when he comes back to Narnia, as they're walking around and, and moving around through Narnia, the characters in the story begin to see the snow melting. They begin to see the ice melting off the trees. They begin to see and hear streams of water flowing again. And before you know it, winter is residing. Winter is being extinguished. It's being replaced with spring. And in a matter of hours, as Lewis says in the book, we move from essentially January to May because Aslan has come. I believe that that is a beautiful portrayal of exactly what is happening in these accounts. The death of winter has put a dark curse over the world and it's shaking up the spiritual realm. These demons are coming to Jesus and calling him by name because they are now afraid. They know that the creator of all things, the redeemer, the rescuer, the only one who can repair the damage is here. Winter is going to melt away. And so we see Jesus moving from village to village and town to town, healing people and bringing life where there was once death, both physically and Spiritually, you see, Jesus, Jesus alone can reverse the curse of sin. And I want us to see three, three things about that specifically today as we conclude. Number one, Jesus can reverse the curse of sin. Number one, because of this, he is capable of it. He is capable. In other words, he has authority over the material and spiritual realm as we've already seen evidenced. So throughout these episodes, we see Jesus exercising authority, right? That's why I had you underline that word authority over the physical world by healing people's diseases, but also over the spiritual realm by casting out demons. He has the authority to do this. Why? Because he created the universe. So of course he has authority over these things. In fact, look at this, Colossians 1. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, speaking of Jesus, Paul says this, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It is Jesus himself, God himself, who holds the material world together. But in the scene with the paralytic being lowered through the roof, 
there's something else worth pointing out. It's not cruel. It's not cruel for Jesus to not immediately heal that man because Jesus knows he's about to do it, right? But notice in that story that we just read, Jesus forgives him of his sins first. Jesus forgives him of his sins first. The one that is, before, before Jesus gives him that greater, or that, that physical healing, he first gives him this greater spiritual healing, the one that's going to matter for eternity. Jesus knows what's most important in this situation. This man longs to walk. He wants to walk. But Jesus knows that ultimately he needs his heart to be healed. And so Jesus confirms his divine authority over the spiritual world, which only God has, by doing something that only God could do in the physical world. Showing that what? He has authority over both. He is capable of bringing that physical healing, yes, but there's something even more important. And he's capable of both. He has authority over both. But I think the bigger question here is, what is Jesus doing? In all of these episodes, what is he doing? You know what he's doing? He is pushing back the darkness. Winter is melting. Spring is coming. There is new life, and it starts in your heart. And the physical pain and suffering, though you may not be healed of that in this life, one day you will. There's a new kingdom in town. Jesus has come, and he is showing you a glimpse of what eternity is going to be like, where the lame will walk, the blind will see, the brokenhearted will be restored and whole again. Jesus is pushing back the dark, darkness because he has authority. He is capable of doing it. But the second thing we see is that he's willing. Not only does he have the power, that's one thing, but he has the concern. He is willing to do this. And he does it by cleansing us. He cleanses us by taking our uncleanness. And what do we mean by that? Well, let's go back to the scene where Jesus heals the leper. This man is suffering from leprosy. Now, here's, here's what you need to realize about leprosy in the ancient world. It was a terrible disease, a terrible disease of the skin where you essentially rotted, you literally rotted away, but you're alive. It was basically a death sentence, not just, not just physically, but also socially. Your social life is over. Lepers could not be a part of normal society. There were very strict rules for them. And no, no healthy person could even come in contact with them. So, so no healthy person could be near them, especially not touch them. In fact, if you touched someone with leprosy, then you would be considered ceremonially unclean. So nobody would do that. So do you see how shocking it is when Jesus not only gets, allows this leper who comes to him to get near to him, but he reaches out his hand and he touches him. 
Jesus' actions culturally are unacceptable here. Nobody would dare think to do this. In many ways, you're risking your life. Physically, in case you catch the disease, and socially, you're risking your own life by touching this man. But Jesus is willing to touch the untouchable. And what does he do? He reverses the physical suffering in this man's body. Only his touch can heal an otherwise terminal disease. And so not only has Jesus restored this man's health, he's also restoring him to society. He can now go and live a normal life. He can now go and return to the ones he loved, who he probably had to say goodbye to when he was diagnosed with this disease and forbidden to live around them any longer. He now has a life with others and a place to belong. You know, this may seem like a nice, isolated event Mark decided to include here, but I think there's something happening here that I believe speaks to every one of us. You see, when Jesus, when he touches this man, this disease-filled man, this unclean man, Jesus, he doesn't become physically unclean himself because his power forbids that. He is, his cleanness is going to change this man. But, but look at this, ceremonially, ceremonially, Jesus would have been considered unclean. But what's happening? You see, the clean, Jesus, becomes unclean so the unclean can become clean. And now his physical rotting has been reversed. He has new life. He belongs to society. This is exactly, this is exactly what happens to us in salvation. Jesus, the clean, on the cross, becomes unclean with our sin. He takes it on himself so that what? So that you and I could walk away clean, healed, and restored. And like the leper, that gives us a place to belong. Your salvation gives you a true home in the family of God. It gives you a seat at the table in the kingdom of God. Because the clean took your uncleanness. And in exchange, you got his righteousness. What an amazing exchange that Jesus touched you. That he touched our hearts. And that we got his love and peace and grace and forgiveness and mercy. His record of righteousness. Because he took our record of unrighteousness on himself because he died in our place. Jesus is capable. He has the authority over the physical and the spiritual world. He's willing. He's willing to touch the untouchable. He's willing to go to the brokenhearted and reverse the curse of sin in their lives. But you know what else? He's determined. We see that Jesus is determined to reach those untouchable people, which, by the way, includes all of us, he repairs the broken. You see, the last scene that we looked at after Jesus called Matthew the tax collector, 
to follow him. Matthew did, and, and Jesus went to his house, and he was eating with his friends and other tax collectors. And what we, we see that word sinners. <clears throat> now, that's interesting because the Pharisees of the time, the religious leaders of the Jewish faith of the time, they would say that anyone who didn't abide by their rules were sinners. Anyone, anyone who didn't live up to those standards were, were sinners. But here's the thing. The Bible tells us that we are all sinners, Pharisees included. So Jesus is eating with people who know do not belong to God, who are sinners. But he's reaching out to them. Jesus, what is he doing? He is doing exactly what he told the fishermen they would do. They're fishing. They are reaching out for people. He's willing and he's determined to meet people where they are. The Pharisees and the scribes don't see their need for that. They don't see their need for a savior because they think they can save themselves. They think that they can be good enough to earn God's love and his approval. Well, I think we struggle with that, don't we? We think, well, I'm a pretty good person. <laughs> That's essentially the game we play. We just kind of roll the dice and say, well, I think that I've been good enough. And so when I die, I think God will let me into the gates of heaven because I think I've been good, pretty good. Because I think my good outweighs my bad. But the gospel tells us that all of us all of us are sinners. We're sinful to the core. We can't save ourselves because God's standard is perfection. Romans 3.23 tells us that all fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short. But there's something here that Jesus is determined. There's, some, there's a type of person that Jesus is determined to reach. And who is that? It's those who are sick and know it. It's those who come to Jesus empty-handed. It's those of us who lay our pride down and say, I know I can't do this. I've tried for years to try to impress people and try to impress you, God. But now I have to humble myself and I have to come to you empty-handed and say, I have nothing to show. On my best day, it might as well be considered filthy rags. Lord, I have nothing. Would you have mercy on me, a sinner? Lord Jesus Christ, I believe you died for my sins in my place. It should have been me. It's only those who, who say that. It's only those who realize that they are the ones who are sick and in need of a Savior who will experience the healing and the forgiveness that only Christ can offer. Jesus started out his ministry by saying, repent and believe in the gospel. In other words, turn away from thinking that you can save yourself and believe in what I'm doing for you. The gospel shows us how sick and desperate we are, so much so that God's wrath must be satisfied, so we must experience eternal death. But then the gospel also tells us that there's another way. Jesus dying in our place, the clean becomes unclean so that you and I, the unclean, may become clean. Jesus is determined to repair the brokenness in those who are sick and confess it. And Jesus is also determined 
to reverse the curse of sin and its effects on this world as a whole. Thad read during our worship earlier, Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5, where we're told that there is something yet to happen. You see, we're living in in this tension that Jesus has already come to earth and he's already died for our sins, but we're not yet in eternity with him the way things will be. But what Thad read for us earlier that you saw on the screens during the offering, that's a glimpse of what is yet to come. It's a glimpse that God so graciously gave us into a future place, a new heaven and a new earth, where Jesus, the creator of all things, will have restored this material world to its proper form and function. And there will be no more disease. All the atoms and the molecules that he originally created will function as they were meant to be. There will be no more disease. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more pain. He will wipe away every tear. And most of all, there will be no more sin. All the things that are sad in your life will become untrue. All the things that keep you up at night, your fears and your anxieties will be melted away. Winter will truly be gone. Only new life. Only new, perfect, and complete life will exist. That's why Jesus says, as he's seated on his throne, I am making what? All things new. So what about you? Maybe you think that you or someone you love are beyond repair. Maybe you think, well, pastor, listen, I hear you, but you don't know what I've done. Honestly, I'm kind of ashamed to even be here right now. And I want you to know, you're right, I don't know what you've done, but the Lord Jesus does. And that's exactly why I died for you. And so your deepest, darkest sins that maybe no one else knows about, the Lord Jesus Christ took them on himself on the cross. And when that happened, that means that they were paid for in full. So that when you turn away from your sin and your pride that is keeping you from coming to the Lord, and you humble yourself just like the leper, just like the sinners, the tax collectors, when you come before the Lord and you lay paralyzed before him, he can look at you and say, son or daughter, your sins are forgiven. Rise and get up and walk in new life. There is hope for you. Jesus has come to repair the brokenness of this created world, and that includes your heart. Jesus is capable of doing that. He's willing to do that for you. He already has by giving up his own life in your place so that you could be clean. And he's determined. He's determined to redeem you. Maybe you know the Lord. Maybe you already have a relationship with Jesus, but you're struggling. You're struggling with doubt. 
about the goodness of God in your life right now. You're struggling with just particular sins that are really nagging you and you keep falling back into. And I've got news for you. Jesus is repairing you. So don't resist that. Don't resist the redemption, the ongoing sanctification, redemption of his power, his capability, his willingness, his determination for you, child of God. Press further into him, into his word, into prayer. Seek the Lord and he may be found. He's doing a good work in your heart. Don't turn away from that. If you know him, be joyful and glad that the Lord is redeeming you. and He's shaping you into the one you will be forever in eternity with him. We're all clean. We're all unclean. We're all very broken. But Jesus truly repairs us. He makes us whole again. Kyle's going to close out with a song, and I'm, I'm going to pray. But we're going to have a couple of our church members down here at the front after we dismiss. And if you, if you need somebody to pray with, if you just need someone to talk with, maybe you're carrying a burden. And we have some faithful brother and sister of Christ that would love to talk with you. I'll be out there in the cafe. You can come talk to me. But don't leave here with that burden on you. Let Jesus carry it for you. Let your brokenness be repaired. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we come empty-handed. God, our best efforts to impress you, to impress others, all the achievements we've done spiritually, corporately in the world, whatever it may be, Lord, whatever tally, whatever tally marks we have that we're keeping up with, of all the good things we think we've done, Lord, it's nothing. It's nothing compared to your righteousness. We need your righteousness, Lord. We are nothing but filthy rags. But Jesus, you have come to repair and restore our uncleanness, our filthiness. Lord, you've come to reverse the curse of sin and the effects the deep effects it's had on us and our lives spiritually. Lord, you make us whole again. And Lord, we await the day where physically we will experience that as well. Lord, we're thankful that the death and decay of our physical bodies is not the end. That the grave does not have the final word. Lord Jesus, as you have risen from the grave, so will we. Because we are united to you when we come empty-handed and confess our need for your righteousness in our place. Jesus, you for us. Your cleanness in place of our uncleanness. So thank you, Lord, that we don't have to rot away. Thank you, Lord, for repairing our souls. I pray for anyone in here today, God, who has yet to truly embrace you as their Savior. And they've been trying to save themselves. Lord, let them not carry that burden any longer. Let them confess that, Lord, whether it be to one of our 
members down front or, or, or myself or anyone on staff, anybody, Lord, let them confess this burden they're carrying. Let them find help in this time of need. Lord, for the believer in the crowd today, for the Christian who's just struggling, Lord, let them see your redemptive hand at work in their lives. Let them not lose hope. Let them not be afraid. So we thank you, Jesus, that you make us whole again. Thank you for repairing us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.